There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, there's been a rise of uh, rates of cancer in the under 50 age group. And one of the possible explanations that has been explored is the use of antibiotics. How could these drugs be connected with an increase in cancer? And uh, who did Einstein call the German Marie Curie? If you know the answer to one or both of those questions, or if you have any questions of your own about science, you give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text your answers or comments to 514-800. Well, welcome one and all. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. My background is chemistry. And as I uh, like to say, chemistry is the science that ties all the other sciences together. Because if you have a feel for what molecules are all about and uh, in the kind of reactions in which they can engage, you have a pretty good feel for how the world works. Uh, so we welcome uh, all of your questions. And um, of course, I, I get questions throughout the week, uh, numerous ones by email. Uh, uh, telephone, yeah, some people still use the phone, but mostly by email. And uh, I try to be on top of that. I, I try to answer every email that I get within a couple of hours. And one that, uh, a question that has repeatedly come up over the last uh, couple of weeks is about a herbal substitute. And uh, it's called berberine. And the reason that so many people have asked about that is because there's stuff going around uh, social media, especially, I think, on TikTok, that labels it nature's Ozempic. And, uh, gee, this has caught on like wildfire uh, on, on TikTok. And uh, this, this stuff, berberine, is uh, found in plants, in, in several different plants. Uh, Golden seal and meadow rue are, are two of the, the ones from which uh, it can be extracted. And uh, those uh, plants have a long history of use in Ayurvedic medicine and from India and traditional Chinese medicine. Well, why the comparison with Ozempic, which is, of course, Novo Nordisk's brand name for its anti-diabetes drug, semaglutide? Because semaglutide has turned out to have an unanticipated side effect, which, of course, is weight loss. That unforeseen outcome stimulated a number of randomized double-blind clinical trials in which semaglutide helped participants lose as much as 15 kilos over 16 months. So that's pretty impressive. Given the number of people who dream of reducing their girth and the rather dismal historical performance of weight control drugs, it's not surprising that Ozempic has blasted its way into headlines. Neither is it surprising that various Ozempic wannabes have tried to jump on the drug's coattails. Since semaglutide is expensive, running at around $1,000 for a month's supply, there's a sizable population ready to be snared with an offer of a cheaper version, especially if it's anointed with the magical marketing term, natural. 
While berberine may indeed be natural, not that this has any relevance. Just ingest some natural aflatoxin B from a mold growing on some improperly stored grains and see how quickly you lose weight. But that will be because of the cancer sparked by that natural toxin. Neither is berberine any version of Ozempic, which is an analog of glucagon-like peptide 1, commonly called GLP-1, a natural hormone that regulates blood sugar and helps people feel full. Berberine has nothing to do with GLP-1. How then has this compound been dredged out to become the darling of the TikTok crowd? It is hard to identify ground zero for berberine as a supposed weight control substance, but a reasonable guess is that someone seeing the Ozempic bandwagon accelerate as it rolled by had the idea of scavenging through the scientific literature to find some substance that could be passed off as a bargain basement relative. That bit of fool's gold was likely found in a review paper in uh, a journal uh, called Clinical Nutrition, ESPEN, which is an Iranian journal with an impact factor of 0.67, which means that papers published in the journal are hardly ever cited by other scientists. In any case, the article in question was a review paper by Iranian scientists of all the publications they could find in the scientific literature that had in any way related the use of berberine to weight control. They found 12, all in low-impact journals. Nine were in Chinese publications, one each in an Italian, Mexican, or Iranian journal. The study spanned anywhere from one to four months and recorded an average weight loss of about four and a half kilos. And now for the buts. Significantly, none of the studies tested berberine in subjects whose only problem was overweight. The studies involved subjects, rather small numbers in each case, who had diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, polycystic ovary syndrome, coronary disease, or had had kidney transplants. The dosage of berberine ranged from 300 to 1,500 milligrams a day, and in some studies, other drugs were also used. Basically, it is not possible to tell whether any weight loss that occurred was due to berberine or disease. Furthermore, there was no dose-response relationship documented, so no way can one conclude from these studies that berberine is nature's ozempic. But uh, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Berberine may not help shed pounds, but it may yet make it into pharmacies as an effective medication. At least some derivatives of berberine may. Drug discovery is a tough and risky business, with roughly only one in 5,000 compounds tested by researchers ever reaching clinical application. Pharmaceutical companies and academic researchers are constantly searching for candidate molecules that have therapeutic potential, and over the years, various compounds found in botanicals used in traditional medical systems have been turned into drugs or have been the base for synthetic variants. Morphine extracted from the opium poppy culture seen from the autumn crocus, as well as the first semi-synthetic drug aspirin made from naturally occurring salicin isolated from the bark of the white willow are classic examples. Today, scrutinizing traditional herbal remedies for clues that may aid in drug development 
is a fertile area of research. Plants that contain berberine, although usually in combination with other botanicals, have been used in traditional Asian medicine for thousands of years for intestinal problems, diarrhea, parasite infection, lowering of temperature, battling toothache, and malaria. Researchers' fancy is always tickled when some substance has a history of such a long use and for such diverse conditions. Indeed, in the last few decades, numerous papers dealing with berberine have been published. Treating cell cultures, animals, and in a few cases, humans, with berberine extracted from plants with alcohol has produced some interesting results that include antioxidant, anti-cancer, cholesterol-lowering, antifungal, antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, and memory-enhancing effects. Intriguing. But of course, there are numerous compounds that have shown such potential in preliminary studies that have ended up on the large refuse heap of the pharmaceutical industry. Perhaps the most interesting laboratory finding, given the rising global tide of type 2 diabetes, is the control that berberine may exert over blood sugar. But there's a problem. Berberine is virtually insoluble in water and has low intestinal absorption, which means poor bioavailability. That is why current research focuses on improved delivery systems. These include nanoparticle formulations that encapsulate berberine to improve bioavailability and synthetic modifications of the molecule to increase solubility. Because of berberine's poor bioavailability, supplements on the market are likely to be useless. However, some derivative of berberine may yet make it to the physician's prescription pad, but it will not be for weight loss. And uh, don't hold your breath waiting for uh, some prescription berberine derivatives. So all that quacking about berberine being nature's ozempic, forget it. Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Artificial barley malt, glycerin, and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Okay, Kenny is always first on the line every week, so so it is this week. Hey, Kenny. Hey, good afternoon, John. How are you, Sunday, going? Good? So what's up? I got uh, who is Dr. Frankenstein Mercury. Uh, the answer is John Harry Victor Frankenstein are both scientists. I can't hear you. I'm saying so John Harry and Victor Frankenstein are both scientists. Uh, no, I I don't know if you're not talking into your phone properly or what. Uh, but it's not. I, I I mean I hear you talking, but I can't make out what you're saying. Let's try once more. Kenny. Dr. Frankenstein Mercury. No, okay. I, I don't know why, but it's not working. All right. Anyway, so uh, we still have our two questions out there. Uh, who did uh, Albert Einstein call the German Marie Curie? And uh, there has been a rise in rates of cancer in the under 50 age group. One of the possible explanations that is being looked at is the use of antibiotics. How could these drugs be connected with an increase in cancer? 
If you know the answer to one of those, give us a call, 514-790-0800, or you can text to 514-800. I'm sure many of you this week saw this item that's been all over the news about a 14-year-old boy in Worcester, Massachusetts, dying after he ate a type of tortilla chip. And uh, this tortilla chip is... uh, coated with uh, extract of the two of the hottest peppers that exist called the Carolina Reaper and the Naga uh, Viper. And um, the thing actually is, is is called the Hot Chip Challenge. And um, the idea, of course, is to be challenged by trying to eat at least one such chip. Um it isn't exactly clear what happened here. I mean, of course, the story is that he died after eating this chip, but but how the chip was connected, we're not going to really find out until the um, uh, report of the autopsy is is made uh, made public. But um, uh, eating such hot things can uh, certainly have devastating results. I mean, I can kind of vouch for that because I remember one episode I had and uh, this was in New Orleans, of course, well-known for producing all kinds of hot sauces. And I remember walking into one of these uh, hot sauce stores on, on uh, I think it was in Bourbon Street, and um, they have samples there to try. Uh, they have them out in, you know, little cups, and they have a chip, and you can dip a chip into it and, and try all of these, you know, hot sauces. And I tried a couple, uh, and then I come up on this one, and I think it, it should have been a, a warning when I saw that they, the bottle was packaged in the form of a coffin. So anyway, I dipped my chip into this and uh, and tried it. And I can tell you that I've never felt anything like that in my life. It, it was like a, a bunch of uh, hot swords, you know, heated in a fire dancing around in your mouth and down your your throat. Uh, Drinking water is useless in those cases because capsaicin, which is the hot ingredient in these peppers, is not soluble in water. So the only way to to try to uh, solve the problem is with some sort of fatty material into which the capsaicin can be absorbed, such as the fat in milk. Well, it turned out that the store actually had some milk ready for such emergencies, but they had run out. The uh, fridge where they kept the milk was empty. So I remember just running out on the street and then going up and down to try to find, you know, their local equivalent of a depanneur to find some milk. And uh, I did eventually find and guzzled about half a liter of milk uh until the uh sensation in my mouth waned so that's that's my memory of, of that uh the hotness of peppers is measured in in uh, something called the scoville uh units and uh, that one was in in the millions and uh yeah it was a memorable experience i mean i didn't think that you know it could be lethal but apparently it can be if we go by this uh, report this week of this unfortunate 14-year-old boy who died after eating one of those uh, hot 
peppers. But again, uh, you know, we, we do have to wait and see um, uh, what exactly happened there, whether it really was the hot pepper that um, was the cause, or maybe just triggered some underlying uh, medical uh, problem. But uh, let me tell you that uh, uh, I'm staying away from any hot sauce that is uh, in a box that is shaped like a coffin. Okay, well, I, I still don't have any uh, answer to my uh, uh, questions, but uh, I don't know why it uh, should be so difficult, especially the one about who Einstein called the German Marie Curie. Uh, I would think that anyone who's got a little bit of a background in, in uh, science would uh, be able to jump right on that one. Well, talking about jumping on something, uh, recently the Ukrainian army has had a number of successes against Russian forces, uh, thanks to, uh, in part, sophisticated artillery that was received from the U.S. The beginnings of artillery trace back to the invention of gunpowder by the Chinese sometime around the 9th century. The discovery is thought to have been accidental, and the result of Chinese alchemists searching for life-extending elixirs. Saltpeter, which is potassium nitrate, was featured in many longevity formulas, probably because of its ability to preserve meat. In their quest for the magical longevity formula, the alchemists happened to hit upon a combination of sulfur, charcoal, and saltpeter that had an explosive potential when confined and lit. Gunpowder was first used to propel primitive fire arrows by the Chinese. Then in the 14th century, Europeans designed the first cannons that were essentially iron tubes packed with gunpowder below a cannonball. When the powder exploded, the cannonball was blasted out. Larger and larger cannons were built over the years since an army equipped with longer-range weapons than the enemy stood to win battles. During the First World War, the Germans built the Paris Gun, an artillery weapon with the longest range of any in history. The gun was capable of hitting Paris from, get this, 120 kilometers away. But since it lacked accuracy, it was mostly a psychological weapon. The Second World War saw the Germans introduce the Schwerer Gustav railway gun, this monster-sized weapon fired shells weighing seven tons and had a range of 47 kilometers. The Germans also introduced the far more mobile Sturmtiger, a cannon that fired rocket-propelled projectiles. Gunpowder fired the projectile, which was also equipped with a rocket motor. Once the round left the barrel, the rocket ignited and propelled it as far as six kilometers. Rocket-propelled projectiles were improved by the U.S., and some of the cannons sent to the Ukraine have a range of about 60 kilometers. The propellant used in the rocket engine is the same as was used in the boosters of the space shuttle, namely aluminum powder as fuel, ammonium perchlorate as oxidizer. An even longer range, more than 90 kilometers, can be achieved by the so-called high-mobility artillery rocket system with which the U.S. has also equipped Ukraine. That's not a cannon, but a mobile rocket launcher fitted on a truck, 
It can fire six rockets, likely propelled by aluminum powder and ammonium perchlorate, although for obvious reasons, the specs are not readily available. Well, one thing is for sure, artillery has come a long way from Chinese fire arrows, <clears throat> but the Ukrainians are still a long way from having weapons that can hit Moscow, except of course for the drones that they have been launching. But uh, they of course are clamoring for the US to provide them with rockets that have the range of uh, getting to Moscow, but that's, I think it's about 1500 kilometers or so. So that is not in the range of the cannons that the Ukrainians have been given. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. The two things we put together had a bad tendency to explode. Well, I did get a correct answer to my questions. And James always comes through. Uh, there's nothing he doesn't know. And uh, indeed, he had the correct answer for who uh, Einstein called the German Marie Curie, and that was Lise Meitner, who actually wasn't German. She was Austrian, although she did do her work first in Germany and then in Sweden uh, before she had to escape uh, Nazi uh, Germany. Uh, uh, Meitner actually was born Jewish, but she had converted to Christianity at a young age. But nevertheless, she was insecure uh, because of her Jewish heritage in, in uh, Germany. Uh, she and Otto Hahn, who had trained under Rutherford right here at McGill, discovered nuclear fission. And uh, fortunately, only Hahn got the Nobel Prize for the discovery of fission. Uh, Meitner definitely should have been included in that. But there probably was, uh, you know, prejudice against women in, in those days. But uh, Han would not have been able to do the work he did without uh, Meitner. The other question about the rise in rates of cancer in the under, eight, under 50 age group uh, and what role antibiotics may play. Uh, the possibility is that antibiotics can lead to an unfavorable impact on gut bacteria. And antibiotics came into use in the 1950s, and people who were then children would have reached their 40s in the 1990s when the rise in early onset cancer began. Uh, of course, there are other possibilities. Uh, the largest rise is in bowel tumors, so certainly diet can have an impact. And uh, also, you know, since the 1950s, there's been increased consumption of meat, particularly processed meats sugar, fat, and then all the ultra-processed foods, refined carbohydrates, and of course, obesity has also skyrocketed. Then the lifestyle has become more sedentary. Maybe there are environmental pollutants. So it, it's hard to say. It's just something that is being explored. And uh, of course, as we often say, uh, association does not mean cause and effect. So just because antibiotics came into use and cancer rates increased doesn't mean that it's due to antibiotics. But because there is at least some sort of scientific plausibility about uh, antibiotics interfering with the microbiome, it is something that does need to be further uh, explored. You know that uh, 
I'm a big sports fan. I've always often talked about that. And uh, I started watching hockey when came to uh, when I came to Canada. And one of the first um, real exciting hockey games that I remember watching on television was in 1960. And indeed, I was glued to the set watching the Winter Olympics from Squaw Valley. And um, by then, you know, I had gotten used to, to you know, Canada being very good in, in hockey. Although, of course, the Soviets had, had come along. But Canada generally, you know, was regarded as the prime world power in, in hockey. And they sent a pretty good team uh, to the Olympics in Squaw Valley in, in California in 1960. Uh, that team actually included Bobby Russo who then went on to play for the Montreal Canadiens. And uh, some of you may also remember Cliff Pennington, uh, who was on that team. And Cliff had set the Eastern Hockey League on fire with his uh, uh, goal-scoring uh, talent. Anyway, there was a big shocker uh, there when Canada lost to the U.S. 2-1. to one. That was totally unexpected. Even more shocking was the Americans then going on to beat the Soviets to advance to the final with Czechoslovakia. And the Americans were behind 4-3 after two periods. And then, incredibly, they scored six goals in the third period to win 9-4, capturing the gold. But there was a very interesting scientific connection here. Uh, it seems that after the second period, one of the Soviet players went into the American dressing room and uh, urged them to inhale some extra oxygen, which apparently was, was a common practice among the Soviet players at that time. And uh, the result was the first U.S. miracle on ice because they won that game to win the gold. And that was 20 years before that far more celebrated victory at the Lake Placid Olympics against the Soviets, who then had Vladislav Tretiak in uh, in nets. Well, uh, inhaling this extra oxygen does make some scientific sense, since oxygen is, of course, needed by muscles to produce energy. And uh, breathing pure oxygen can indeed elevate the amount of oxygen that is delivered to muscles by hemoglobin in, in our red blood cells. But that is a very temporary effect. What works better is training at higher altitude because each breath at higher altitude supplies less oxygen and the body adapts to this. The kidneys react by putting out more of a hormone called erythropoietin or EPO. And this prompts the bone marrow to increase its production of red blood cells. And of course, the more red blood cells you have, the more oxygen is available for delivery to muscles. And the benefits of high altitude training were brought home at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, which is located, uh, what is it, some 7,000 feet above sea level. And in preparation, many athletes trained at high altitudes and the effects were reflected in their performance. The runners ran faster, the jumpers jumped further, and they jumped higher. 
And uh, that was very interesting. And after the Mexico games, some athletes began to wonder if there was an even better way of increasing the number of red blood cells that carry oxygen. How about just withdrawing some of your own blood, storing it in a bottle, and infusing it before an event to increase your red blood cell count? Well, you know what? That works. And the concept of blood doping was born and embraced particularly by cyclists. And then in the 1990s, scientists isolated the gene that codes for the production of erythropoietin, and they managed to insert it into bacteria, bacteria multiplied, and they produced copious amounts of EPO. It was great for patients who suffered from anemia or who were on dialysis because of improperly functioning kidneys, <laughs> but you might guess that it didn't take long for athletes to figure that they had been handed an easy method to improve performance. And uh, indeed, cheaters got away with injecting uh, EPO until a method of detection was developed for the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Now, I remember that there was an awful lot of talk about EPO, EPO in sporting uh, circles, but we really you know, heard uh, about it extensively when uh, Lance Armstrong, uh, who had won cycling's Tour de France, probably the world's most demanding athletic competition, and he was interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. And after years of repeated denial, he finally admitted that he had blood doped, he had injected EPO, used human growth hormone, testosterone, and even diuretics to try to dilute his uh, urine so that these chemicals would not be detected. And uh, not only had he cheated in this fashion, he actually ran an empire that provided drugs to others. Anyway, as you know, Armstrong's fall from grace was quick, and brutal. He was stripped of all his titles and went from being one of the world's most admired athletes to one of the most reviled. Uh, of course, uh, he was not the only one to abuse drugs. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we had baseball stories as well. And then, of course, we had Ben Johnson. Uh, and, uh, of course, we all felt ashamed in Canada when uh, his gold medal was taken away because he had used the anab anabolic steroids, Tanozolol. And then uh, in baseball, you know, the 60 home run season, which is really quite an achievement. And it was only achieved nine times in history. But six of those nine times were in the years between 1998 and 2001. How come? Because that was a steroid era. And uh, this uh, this was when uh, uh, Mark McGuire uh, twice reached over 60 uh, so did Sammy Sosa three times, and Barry Bond set the all-time record, 73 homers. They all cheated. They all used uh, uh, steroids. And it wasn't until 2003 that baseball instituted testing for, uh, for steroids. Molecules are dawning every day. Discoveries for happiness in a fabulous array of never-ending searches on by men who dare and 
Tomorrow is my day at the Eleanor London Public Library for this month. And uh, I do that uh, once a month, usually the first Monday of the month at two o'clock and uh, bring you up to date on what's happening in the world of science, tell some interesting stories, uh, answer questions. And everyone, of course, is welcome. It's a highly visual presentation. And uh, the Eleanor London Public Library is in Cote St. Luke uh, on Cavendish, located just across the street from uh, what is now called Cartier Cavendish, used to be the Cavendish uh, Mall. And uh, of course, uh, everyone is welcome. So that's at two o'clock tomorrow. Also, finally, the time has arrived for our annual Trottier Public Science Symposium, which is one of McGill's premier events. And it takes place this Wednesday and this Thursday at Moise Hall. Moise Hall is in the Arts Building, which is right at the top of the main drive up uh, from uh, Sherbrooke Street on the McGill campus. It's the building that always has the McGill flat flag flying on top. This year, our topic is uh, the use and abuse of uh, substances in the world of sports. And uh, obviously, doping is going to be an issue. So the, uh, it's over two evenings. And on the first evening, which is Wednesday night at six o'clock, we'll have a couple of speakers. Uh, one uh, will be speaking about uh, nutrition and the the other one about uh, basically uh, quackery in sports and, and uh, you know, the kind of shortcuts that, uh, that uh, athletes try to take. And the second night, I will be sitting down and interviewing Dick Pound. Dick Pound, of course, is a former swimming champion, former chancellor of McGill, and the first ever president of the World Anti-Doping Agency. And we will talk about the use and abuse of uh, drugs in sports. And obviously, we will spend quite some time talking about Lance Armstrong, who is uh, one of... Uh, Dick Pound's arch enemies. And this promises to be a rather invigorating uh, discussion. If you want to join us, of course it's free, uh, but we do ask you to register on the web so that we have some idea of how many people will be joining us. And the way to do that is to go to our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS. OSS, of course, stands for Office for Science and Society. So mcgill.ca slash OSS, and you will uh, immediately see information there about the uh, Public Science Symposium and about how to register for it. Uh, these events uh, always turned out, turn out to be a lot of fun. You get to meet interesting people. You get to hear interesting people speak, and uh, you can uh, schmooze a lot with other people who uh, have a passion for science. So that's at six o'clock on Wednesday night and at seven o'clock on Thursday night. And each of those sessions should last about uh, an hour and a half. I think we'll have a lot of fun. Talking about fun, the British Library 
just a wonderful, wonderful place. And it has numerous awe-inspiring items on display. For example, they have uh, Leonardo da Vinci's original notebooks. They have the first collected edition of Shakespeare's plays that were published in 1623. Uh, that was seven years after Shakespeare died. The library also houses an illustrated Byzantine manuscript that dates back to 1220. But unfortunately, parts of the illustrations where a white pigment had been used have turned black. Uh, these include where red and white pigments were mixed to produce flesh tones. The problematic white pigment is lead carbonate, manufactured since ancient times by reacting metallic lead with vinegar to form lead acetate, and then exposing this to carbon dioxide released by fermenting vegetable matter. During the Victorian era, the museum was gas-lit by lamps burning gas produced by the combustion of coal. Coal gas is a mixture of methane, hydrogen, and carbon monoxide, but also contains small amounts of hydrogen sulfide. Hydrogen sulfide reacts with lead carbonate to produce black lead sulfide. Hydrogen sulfide also reacts with iron to form gray iron sulfide, the characteristic color seen around the yolk of eggs that have been boiled for a long time, or if an egg isn't fresh. With heat, cysteine, a sulfur-containing amino acid in egg white proteins, can release hydrogen sulfide that is then driven by heat towards the yolk where it combines with ions of iron to form gray iron sulfide. If the egg isn't fresh, then enough hydrogen sulfide is produced to impart the characteristic odor of rotten eggs. Although hydrogen sulfide is as toxic as hydrogen cyanide, the amounts released by cooking eggs are way too small to cause a problem. On the other hand, decomposing manure, as in sewers, sewer treatment plants, or Pig manure storage facilities can release potentially lethal amounts of hydrogen sulfide. Many deaths have been recorded due to workers being accidentally exposed to the gas. Interestingly, hydrogen sulfide is also produced naturally in the human body from the metabolism of proteins and uh, has been shown to offer some protection from oxidative stress. And this has researchers looking at drugs that can release tiny amounts of the gas, although so far none has been approved for this purpose. It's an interesting example of how the same substance can either be beneficial or detrimental depending on, uh, on the dose. So you never know where you're going to find some uh, interesting uh, uh, chemistry. But as I told you, you can find some interesting chemistry tomorrow at two o'clock, Elnor London Public Library. And uh, I'm going to discuss some interesting things, including talking about Oppenheimer, uh, the movie, and uh, explaining the story behind uh, uh, Oppenheimer. Uh, some of it uh, is not really revealed in, in the movie because they didn't deal all that much with the, the science. They dealt more with the sociological connections uh, that uh, Oppenheimer uh, had. So we'll talk about that. And uh, we'll also talk about some uh, other interesting uh, items that have been in the news, such as uh, 
cultured meat, that is making meat without the use of an animal. That, of course, is fascinating undertaking. And then on Wednesday at six o'clock and Thursday at seven o'clock, we'll be in Moise Hall at McGill University for the annual Laurent Trottier Public Science Symposium. So maybe we'll see you at one of those events. And if not, we'll see you back here next Sunday, same time, same station. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.